Welcome and thank you for joining us for this public conversation that's been convened by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which I direct at the University of Minnesota. The Center is part of the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is the School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. This event, like our others, will be recorded, it will be posted on YouTube, and it will be available as a podcast which you can get on all the, the main Apple and, and uh, uh, Stitcher and, um, and the other Spotify, I guess. Um, so check that out. One thing I want to let you know is that our programs are um, geared to getting you participating. And you'll see at the bottom of the screen, uh, we have a very handy Q&A button. So give us your questions. We like questions that are challenging or going in a new direction, those are very helpful. So please do that. Quick word before we jump into today's program about what we've got coming up. As some of you know, the center is um, the home of the Certificate and Election Administration. It's the largest uh, first online certificate granting um, program to train election officials. So we are really tapped into election officials both in Washington, such as the Department of Homeland Security and throughout the country at the state and the county levels. Um, and so we're gonna have a program October 8th to really get a read on what is happening in real time in elections throughout the country. Join us for that. It's gonna be spectacular. Wendy Underhill, who runs elections at the um, National um, um, a Council, excuse me, the National Conference of state legislatures will be um, running that. So October 8th, very excited to have Tom Freeman coming back for another visit on October 14th. Um, Tom is gonna to be talking about um, the, the, the prospects for America. Is America in a sharp decline, both at home and abroad? And as usual, we'll get into a lot of other topics. Um, and I'm sure the Middle East will be part of that. So that'll be a very special event. Join us for that. We're gonna have a program uh, in the run-up to the election um, in the last week with uh, Vin Weber, who's a prominent Republican strategist, and with Justin Bowen, who is a prominent Democratic strategist, most recently running the campaign for Amy Klobuchar's uh, quite effective uh, run for uh, the nomination of the Republican excuse me, nomination of the Democratic Party. Um, on to today's program. Very excited to be uh, talking about one of the most important issues that is on the minds of all of us who are following elections, which is what is happening with women voters and women candidates. And we've got a terrific program. Moderating today's program is my colleague here at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Political Science, Catherine Pearson. Professor Pearson is an associate professor her research focuses on the U.S. Congress and on women and politics. So it's the perfect person. She's got a new book that's that in process that she's working on that's analyzing Congresswomen's pursuit of power in a partisan age. She's written a whole lot else. So this is someone we want to keep uh, an eye on and someone is perfect for this event. In addition to her academic uh, life, uh, Catherine Pearson was a research fellow at Brookings for five years and someone who worked on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. for two members of Congress. So both an academic and someone who knows something about Congress. It's my pleasure to welcome my colleague, Catherine Pearson. Catherine, there you go. Thank you, Professor Jacobs. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm delighted to uh, welcome Professor Jennifer Lawless, uh, a professor of politics at the University of Virginia and currently the department chair. And Professor Lawless has written extensively on the subject of women in politics, and so it is a pleasure to welcome her here to shed insight uh, based on her research with us today about the topic of women in politics. And it's great to have you back in Minnesota, Professor Lawless, even if only virtually. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to join you. I, I think we should also let the let the viewers know that this is funny and sort of strange because we were in graduate school together, um, different schools, 
at the same time. And we've been having conversations about women in politics for 20 years. This is true. And now we're opening it up uh, to a live audience that we can't see. So this is something new for new, but it's wonderful. Um, and we'll talk a lot about important milestones that women candidates and women in office have made recently. But I think it's very important to start with the context. And that context is that women are dramatically underrepresented at all levels of government in the United States. Women comprise 23% of the U.S. House of Representatives and 26% of the U.S. Senate. There are only nine women serving as governor today, and only 29% of state legislators in the U.S. are women. 32% of the Minnesota state legislature is comprised of women. And so you've done extensive research on this. Why are women so dramatically underrepresented? The good news is that it's not because voters are unwilling to vote for women or donors are unwilling to give to women. In fact, studies dating back now to the 1980s have shown that when women run for office, they do as well as men. They're just as likely to win their races and they are just as likely to win by a substantial margin. And that's been the case, shockingly, for both Democrats and Republicans and in primaries and general elections. So the issue is not so much so that there's no demand for female elected officials, it's that women are less likely than men to run in the first place. Um, Richard Fox and I, over the course of the last 20 years, have done extensive surveys of potential candidates. These are women and men who work in the professions that are most likely to lead to a political career. And we found that even when women and men have the same levels of political interest, political knowledge, even the same jobs, the same incomes, the same backgrounds in education, women are about a third less likely than men ever to even think about throwing their hats into the ring. They're also about 50% less likely actually to do it. So even though women and men win at equal rates, far fewer contests feature female candidates in the first place. Thank you. And I know you've done research on young women as well. Can you shed light on that and whether or not we should be hopeful about gender parity anytime soon in the future? Yeah, we should not be hopeful. Uh, and we should not be hopeful because what we found was when we did a national survey of college students and we asked them, have you ever considered running for office? Do you think you're qualified to run? Has anybody ever suggested it to you? We actually found that the gender gap in interest in running, which we would call the gender gap in political ambition, was just as large among 18 to 22 year olds. This was a few years ago, but as it was among 50, 60 and 70 year olds. And so this is not a situation that is just going to fix itself over time. More and more women are occupying the background careers that tend to lead to a political office. But that doesn't mean that they're becoming increasingly likely to think of politics for them. And I should note that this gender gap in political ambition is exacerbated by the incumbency advantage. The reality is, especially at the federal level, that when you run for office, it's pretty much your seat to hold. And the overwhelming majority of incumbents seek re-election. More than 90% of them traditionally win re-election. So there aren't that many opportunities for traditionally marginalized groups to make gains in the first place. So if women are less likely to be putting themselves out there and there are so few opportunities, it's just not a recipe for major change anytime soon. Okay, but there are some good news. A record number of women currently serve in the 116th Congress. Um, 26 women serve in the Senate, 101 women serve in the House, and a record 47 women of color serve in the two chambers. So if those incumbents are reelected, I mean, that's hopeful. Um, what do the prospects look like for congressional candidacies um, in 2020 for women and women of color? Well, let me even give you a little bit of other good news, which is that pretty much every election cycle, with the exception of 2010, has seen a net increase in the number and percentage of women serving in Congress. So the good news is that we are trickling up in the right direction. The pace at which we're moving is incredibly slow and often frustrating to people, but we are seeing slow and steady progress. Um, if we look at 2020, 60 women filed to run for the Senate. About two-thirds of those were Democrats. Uh, the other third were Republicans. Um, and it looks like about 21 have made it through and will be nominees. That's not a record, but it's not terrible. Uh, 2018 was the greatest number. We had 23 women running as major party candidates. Um, in the House, we do, in fact, have a pretty substantial record. Uh, 583 female candidates filed to run. Again, roughly two-thirds were Democrats, a third were Republicans. Um, and that's more than 100 more than what we saw in 2018, which had been a record in and of itself. Um, and what we've actually got right now is women competing in 
I believe 34 of the 47 open seat contests. And so that's where you actually see major gains. So although we, um, you know, although it's going to be slow and steady progress, it seems that this election cycle, women are running in all of the right places for them to actually make a, a big increase. The other thing I would note is that 2020 is different than 2018 in that almost all of the traction and all of the um, uptick in the total number of women has been on the Republican side. So the number of female Democrats running this cycle is high, it's a record, but it's not notably different than what we saw two years ago. On the Republican side, we're seeing almost a doubling. And if we are going to see real progress, given how polarized the country is, it requires that we have both female Democrats and Republicans seeking political office. It's, uh, I want to follow up on that um, in this partisan gap in women's candidacies. So in 2018, 36 women were elected to the House for the first time. 35 of them were Democrats. In the current House, there are only 13 Republican women. Um, so why is that? What explains this big partisan gap? Well, I mean, it, it depends who you ask. If you ask Democratic strategists, they'll say that it's because they really prioritize recruiting and supporting female candidates. If you ask Republicans, they'll say that there just aren't enough women out there. My view is sort of in between. I think that the Democrats have done a much better job than the Republicans identifying and supporting women who do want to run for office. And they've worked hand in hand with Emily's List, who's done a ton of the legwork for them to identify these female candidates. On the Republican side of the aisle, identity politics just doesn't play that well. And it seems to be the case that a lot of political elites among Republicans believe that the situation will sort itself out and that when women want to run, they'll support them, but they're not going to go out of their way to ensure that they have diversity among their candidates. So again, I would emphasize that when Republican women run, they're just as likely as men to get through their primaries. They're just as likely to win um, in the general election. But they're not running in the first place. Thank you. Um, so going back to this gender gap in candidacies, um, we have a question from the audience about the toxicity of campaigns. Um, do women and men view campaign activities differently? They don't, but they all view campaign activities as completely unappealing and it makes them want to throw up in their mouths. So basically what we've done is we've asked potential candidates over the course of the last two decades, how would you feel about going door to door? How would you feel about fundraising? How would you feel about having to navigate the media environment if you were to run for office? And what we found is that about 80% of men and women find those activities incredibly off-putting. And the, the very nature and the mechanics of a campaign are part of the reason that they're not interested in running. It doesn't contribute to the gender gap in political ambition though, because women and men tend to assess those activities equally unfavorably. It also seems to be the case that men are willing to suck it up a little bit more and say, well, no, I don't want to do any of that either. But ultimately, it's worth it in order for me to achieve this position of power, whereas women are more inclined to say, no, thank you. And I'm not going to endure this, even if it means achieving a position of political power. I would note, I ran for Congress in 2006. The way you think about these activities is a lot different than the way you actually experience them. And I would say to anybody that's watching right now, if you think you wouldn't be good at fundraising or you don't think that you'd be good at talking to voters or you don't like talking to journalists, you really don't know. It's amazing how once you're a candidate, all of these things just become something you have to do. And the same way that you thrive and you succeed in your regular job, you become pretty good at that too. It's a steep learning curve, but it's totally doable. How have women's groups on both sides of the aisle helped women candidates, either by recruiting or providing support in these campaign activities or in raising money? On the Democratic side of the aisle, EMILY's list has been instrumental in ensuring that pro-choice Democratic women are featured in the most competitive contests and that they have the resources required to be competitive in those races. And over time, an endorsement from EMILY's list, especially at least among Democratic women, really is a stamp of approval, so much so that the organization now not only endorses, but they'll also identify potential candidates that they think would make for great candidates and encourage them to run. It's not only Emily's list though, there are 500,000 elected offices in this country and only 537 are at the federal level. So there are statewide and local women's groups that have also done a lot to train, identify and help support female candidates. On the Republican side of the aisle, it's not the same. Um, 
20 years ago, there was the wish list, which was supposed to be sort of the counter to Emily's list, but they were supporting pro-choice Republican women. Pro-choice Republican women now lose elections. That's not a winning strategy in a very polarized environment. And that organization, as a result, pretty much disappeared. It hasn't been replaced by any clear arm of the party or any clear group that is as effective and as far-reaching as Emily's List. And so for women who are running on the Republican side, candidate trainings are certainly open to them, but not necessarily uh, geared to help or assist female candidates in particular. Relatedly, uh, do we know any, this is a question from the audience, do we know any data about the volume of female campaign managers in major state and federal races? Uh, we do, so Campaigns and Elections magazine publishes these data from time to time. And generally, women are underrepresented in roughly the same proportion. Um, female candidates are a little bit more likely, I believe, to hire women in top positions. But the reality is, if you're running a really, really competitive race, you want to hire the person who has the most political experience because you want to win that race. And so although there's no incumbency advantage among campaign managers, your resume is basically your incumbency advantage. And if you've run previously successful campaigns, that's who's, you know, th that's who any candidate, male or female, is going to want to hire. Um, Kellyanne Conway became the first woman to uh, manage a winning presidential race in 2016. So that was a major glass ceiling that was broken. And we have on the Joe Biden campaign, many women at, in very high positions. Um, Kamala Harris's uh, staff as well, in particular, uh, is comprised of quite a few women. So, you know, I think that if the Biden-Harris team wins, that opens up a lot of opportunities for staffers from this time around to become the new um, sort of top tier of campaign professionals, many of whom are women and many of whom are people of color. Thank you. Uh, former state legislator Phyllis Kahn is familiar with your research. She writes, I once heard that a man who rates his qualifications as low is more likely to run than a woman. Your thoughts? I, that, so that's true. So um, we asked people, how qualified do you think you are to run for office? And one of the most amazing findings from the book, um, the book, by the way, if anybody wants to buy it, is called It Still Takes a Candidate, Why Women Don't Run for Office. Um, on Amazon, it now probably costs about 17 cents. Uh, one of the main findings was that women who self-assess as unqualified to run for office don't even think about running for office. A man who checks off that box that says, I am not at all qualified to run for office, still has about a 50% chance of giving it serious thought. And so we're in a position right here where it doesn't even matter that women are less likely than men to deem themselves qualified in the first place. It's also the case that women let their self-doubts about their qualifications hold them back. And men don't seem to be at all stunted by that. I should note as well that there's no evidence to suggest that women are unqualified. It could very well be the case that these men and women who have the exact same qualifications just aren't self-assessing that way. And we did interviews with about 400 of these people, phone interviews, after we had conducted these surveys. And one of the things that we found most stunning was that when we asked women, well, why don't you think you're qualified? they would list like 10 credentials and say, well, I'm, I don't have a law degree and a business degree and I'm not a good public speaker. And they would think that they needed all of these things. And you'd ask a man why he thought he was qualified and he would say things like, I have passion or have you seen my state senator? He's a moron. And so they were holding themselves up to different bars. And, and it might very well be because women perceive that you have to be twice as good to get half as far in a male dominated environment. And in a lot of environments, that's true. That's certainly the case in law and business and many of the professional environments that they've navigated. The thing that would surprise people about politics is there's actually far more gender equity than people expect. They assume that women can't get elected at the same rate. They're surprised to hear that they can. They figure it must be so much worse in politics because everything is so much worse in politics. Great, thank you. We have a question uh, that says, I imagine a number of the people watching this are faculty. So what can your colleagues and universities do to change the gender gap and the desire to run, run among those ages 18 to 22? I think that one of the most important things happens the minute high school students step foot on a college campus as first year freshman students. In our studies, we found what we call the freshman dorm effect which is that when high school girls become college women, their political ambition basically stays flat. The overwhelming majority of them had no interest in running for office in high school, and they continue to have absolutely no interest in running for office. For guys, that's not the case. 
they were roughly the same level as the girls were in high school. But the minute they get to college, their ambition shoots up. And that could be because of a masculinized ethos on college campuses, but it could also be because the kinds of activities, extracurricular and sports related, the kinds of classes that they take reinforce competition and they reinforce the kinds of traits and the kinds of experiences that are rewarded in the political arena. Women are just as likely as men to seek out and achieve positions of leadership, but they're more likely to do it in community-based activities. They're more likely to do it in non-political or non-competitive arenas. And so what I would tell faculty is that the minute you get freshman girls on your campus, encourage them to continue down the path of casting a wide net in terms of what they might be interested in. Because the kinds of things that you start doing your first or second year in college tend to tell you what you're gonna do your third or fourth year. And studies show that you know, by the time you're 17 or 18 years old, if you've written something off as a career, you're not gonna pursue it. It doesn't mean that there's perfect mapping between what you wanna do when you grow up when you're 18 and what you ultimately do. But if you've written something off as something that's totally undesirable, it's very, very unlikely. So I always say, tell students to take those politics classes, join college Democrats or Republicans, seek out a leadership position, join debate, just try to hone those skills just in case you decide that this is something that you like later on. Great, that's great advice. I hope that, I hope that people are, are heeding it and uh, faculty will pass it on. Um, we have uh, another question, a more general question about what you think needs to change in our culture and political process to encourage women to run for office more. So I think the good news is that we did not find a gender gap in political ambition among high school students, which suggests that the way that we're socializing young children and the way that we're raising boys and girls is no longer as deeply gendered as it had been in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or even 80s. When we look at high school students, although the majority of them have absolutely no interest in going into politics, it's really not a substantial gender gap there. Uh, so, so that leaves me feeling pretty positive. It's not like we have to fundamentally reorient the way that families engage around politics. Um, and, and so I think that there's a short-term solution and that lays largely with the media. Um, we tend to have a political system and a media environment in which terrible things are what's newsworthy, in which a battle of the sexes generates clicks and ratings, in which any disaster or terrible outcome or surprising upset is what makes the headline. And as a result, we don't see that when women run for office, they're just as likely to win. We don't see the thousands and thousands of women who are running at the local and state level, who are having no problems raising money, who are having no problems generating attention and garnering votes. And I think that providing that context the, the national media providing that context would go a very, very long way. I'm hopeful on this front because compared to even 10 years ago, the manner in which mainstream journalism covers women in politics, I think has gotten a lot smarter and a lot more accurate. Um, and I think that providing that context is part of what has made it better. But I don't know. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. And uh, this also relates to um, a question about any changes among women 18 to 24 uh, because of the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in particular. And then I'll also add that, you know, the New York Times did this amazing feature uh, where they profiled every single current woman member of Congress of the Senate um, and photographed them you know, every member, both sides of the aisle. And so I think there is more varied media coverage um, about women's successes. Yeah, I, and I think that that's good. The, the problem, of course, though, is that it's a, it's a double-edged sword because highlighting Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, for example, can certainly signal to young women that you don't necessarily have to look the part of an angry old white guy to get elected to Congress. And you can take on an incumbent and you can run an unconventional campaign and then you can be a superstar when you get there. The downside is that the amount of attention that she has gotten, which is often negative and has often been reinforced by horrific behavior on, online, reinforces a lot of people's worst expectations about what it would be like to put yourself out there. And so, you know, it's this tricky um, needle to thread where you want to highlight these women and you want to demonstrate that it's not one size fits all. And there are lots of opportunities and lots of backgrounds that are now 
beginning to make a make their way into um, the Capitol. But alongside that comes a lot of hate and vitriol. Right. And along those lines, um, how do you think the 2016 campaign contributes to women's perceptions of women's candidacies? Um, sort of did uh, Hillary Clinton's run for office inspire young women or did it send a signal to young women that running for office is really challenging um, and you're going to face a lot of negativity? I think we still don't know because 2016 featured two candidates that were unlike anybody we've ever seen before. Um, Hillary Clinton was not your typical Democratic candidate. She had been a household name for a quarter of a century, and she had a terrible relationship with the media. And Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Um, and so as a result, uh, it's hard to know how much of the 2016 effects had to do with gender versus Clintonism or Trumpism. Uh, I will say that if nothing else, the 2016 election demonstrated that America's willing to and ready to vote for a female president, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So this general sense that, oh, America's not ready, we have to be really, really careful, just doesn't bear out. The electoral college system might not be ready, but when it comes to actual voters casting their ballots, they're ready, and that's a plus. Uh, and if you look at 2018 and 2020, these record numbers of women running it's hard to know whether it's because Hillary Clinton inspired them or Donald Trump inspired them using more of a backlash effect. Right. But 2016 certainly inspired them. And at this point, if what we care about is representation and increasing women's numeric presence in our political institutions, then I'm sort of of the mind that disentangling how much of it was pro-Clinton versus anti-Trump is probably not worth it because we're never going to see two candidates like that again. Right. Right. Um, thank you. Switching gears, uh, another question from the audience. Can you speak to the uh, slight but positive increase in the number of transgender women in elected office? Uh, the numbers uh, here are small, but transgender women have been far more successful thus far compared to transgender men. Uh, so I don't, I don't have the actual numbers. What I would say about transgender candidates, about female candidates, about gay and lesbian candidates is that we talk about the ills of partisan polarization and how as a result of this country becoming increasingly polarized, Congress can't get anything done, we're always stuck in gridlock and congressional approval continues to dip lower and lower. The upside of polarization, which we tend not to focus on, is that nobody cares what your identity is anymore. All they care about is whether there's a D or an R in front of your name. And that means that if you're from a traditionally marginalized group, or if you're from a group that might not have generated a ton of positive affect in the community, or even if you're from a group where there is systematic and explicit bias and discrimination against you, that matters less in politics than it does in every other realm, because people are going to say, you know what, I, I don't like women, but I'm going to vote for her because she shares my party affiliation. I don't think that transgender rights are the best way to go for this country, but I'm going to vote for this candidate because he shares my party affiliation. And so the upside to partisan polarization is that in some ways, I think it's making the political process more inclusive when it comes to various identities. And maybe that's going to allow people to become more familiar with those traditionally marginalized groups and ultimately more accepting of them. So, you know, I'm not that surprised that we've seen um, a, a pretty substantial uptick in the number of transgender candidates, as well as those who are winning um, for lower level office. Because at the end of the day, you know, people are willing to take a lot that they would not necessarily have thought they were okay with if it means beating the other side. And although that's not a great statement about where we are as a culture when it comes to a lot of these various groups, I think it does highlight that there are opportunities now for people um, who don't look the part to affect change, working from within the system. That's right. And we've seen exciting firsts for transgender uh, city council, uh, two city council members here in Minneapolis. Um, right. And our own research published a while ago shows that uh, in many congressional primaries, women are actually more likely to win in the Democratic Party. Um, they're not less likely in the Republican Party, uh, nor more likely, but um, Democratic women do have an edge in the Democratic primary. And that was true among candidates in, in 2018 as well. Right. Although I, some, something else that we found um, is that they also attract more competition, right? So there's this general sense out there that a woman is more beatable than a man. And it's not true. But what that means is that when you're a female candidate running, when people in your own party see that you would be who they're competing against, or even people in the other party see that you would be who they'd be competing against, 
they're more likely to throw their hat into the ring. So there's still this perception out there that women are weaker. Right. And, that, and do you think that that uh, has led to the record number of women running against women in this cycle? Oh, absolutely. Um, because women perceive it as well, right? Like, it's not just that men say, oh, I'd rather run against a woman than a man. It seems to be the case anyway, that women would rather run against who they perceive as the weakest candidate. Um, that said, you know, that, that demonstrates uh, the fact that there are a lot of women running against women in some ways highlights how far we've come, uh, but it also doesn't do great things for women's overall numeric representation because when you've got several of them competing in a primary, only one is gonna make it through to the general election. And so, you know, I think that's part of the reason that especially in 2018, when we saw on the Democratic side of the aisle, such a substantial uptick in the number of female candidates and then not that much in the way of overall gains. A lot of it was because they were competing against each other in very crowded races. Uh, shifting gears to uh, something, tonight's debate uh, with Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence. Um, how will the dynamics of gender and race affect expectations and evaluations? Well, I would say that as far as the gender dynamics are concerned, debates are one of the only places where voters see two candidates in the same place at the same time interacting with one another. And Danny Hayes and I have written a book about gender and midterm elections. And we, in doing that, we had interviewed um, several dozen campaign managers and debates were the one place where they said that gender was very relevant. They weren't thinking that much about gender when they were coming up with a campaign agenda. They weren't thinking about gender when they were figuring out their media strategy or their fundraising strategy. But when it came to the debates, both um, male and female candidates, campaign managers said that this was really important because when a woman debates a man, we're still in a situation where people don't like to see a woman being bullied and a male candidate can't look like he's physically or verbally bullying a female candidate. By the same token, a female candidate needs to project strength and demonstrate that she's capable of being bullied. And so there's this very strange dynamic where a man has to pull back, but a woman in some ways is trying to bait him so that she can demonstrate that she can hit back with force. Um, the candidates, all, the, the campaign managers also almost all referenced Rick Lazio, which any students watching have no idea who this person is, but in 2000, Hillary Clinton ran for the Senate in New York and Rick Lazio was her Republican competitor. And at one of the debates um, close to election day, they were both on the same stage and he wanted her to sign a public financing agreement saying that she would like not take money from, uh, from specific groups. And he actually left his podium and walked over to her podium and shook this document in her face and said, sign it, sign it, sign it now. And she was prepared for the moment and she kind of like pushed him away and said she'd look at it later. But it's pretty much well known that at that moment, he lost the race. Um, he looked like he was encroaching upon a woman. And these candidates told us, these uh, campaign managers told us time and again, that they needed to avoid a Rick Lazio moment. Now, Donald Trump had no problem um, invoking, basically, Rick Lazio when he debated Hillary Clinton in 2016, uh, sort of hovering behind her. But I would note, again, that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are a strange combination, and that's probably not what we're going to see. So my bet tonight is that Mike Pence is going to be incredibly polite, and Kamala Harris is going to be hard-hitting, but respectful. Okay, we, we will find out. Um, so turning to uh, presidential elections, obviously 2016 saw a milestone with the first major party candidate running for the presidency, Hillary Clinton. Um, she was defeated in the Electoral College. And then 2020 featured a record number of women running for the Democratic Party nomination. Um, but in the end, of course, none of them were successful. How much did gender matter compared to other factors in the 2020 nominating contest? I think it mattered indirectly. Um, so, so let me start by saying that although none of the women was successful, almost two dozen male candidates weren't successful either, right? So, uh, you know, and there were far more men than women who were seeking that nomination. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden all along had the most name, had the highest name recognition. They generally, until Biden really started tanking toward the end, had both been the two candidates that were up in the polls. And it's not a surprise. Biden had been the previous vice president and Sanders had been the runner up for the nomination in 2016. And so, you know, I think that that structurally that played a 
played a role in their success. I do think that gender mattered in that the perception of another female candidate going up against Donald Trump made voters worried. And there was this sense that they didn't want a replay of 2016. If they wanted to defeat Donald Trump, they were going to have to do it on his terms, and they were going to have to do it with somebody that was going to fight with him the way that he fights. And it's more difficult to think of a woman doing that. I also think that, you know, it's, it, it was a question where you didn't want to, if, if you were a voter who was worried, you didn't want to think that this could be sort of Hillary 2.0. I think that hurt Elizabeth Warren early on, in fact. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think that it was this explicit bias against female candidates. And if Donald Trump was not the incumbent president and had not run the kind of campaign he had run in 2016, I don't know that it would have mattered as much. But I do think there was this sort of underlying sense that it was going to take a man to beat him because of the way he plays the game. And we know in 2016 uh, that 53% of white women uh, supported Donald Trump in his uh, bid for the presidency. Could you talk about women voters, both in 2016 and what you expect in 2020? Yeah, so women are more likely than men to be registered to vote. They turn out at greater rates, and they're also more likely to vote for the Democrat. So what winds up happening is that if you can mobilize women and excite women and uh, have a Democratic candidate who inspires those women, you can generally do a pretty good job uh, winning an election. When you chip away at any of those dynamics, the Republicans tend to do well. And so what we saw in 2016 were two of the most unlike, disliked, unfavorable candidates we've ever seen in presidential history. Um, you know, if you, when you look at the exit polls on election day, a majority of voters, including Republicans, did not think that Donald Trump was fit temperamentally to be in office. And a majority also felt that Hillary Clinton was the most untrustworthy person they had ever encountered in their entire lives. Now, 90% of Democrats still voted for Clinton and 90% of Republicans still voted for Donald Trump, which leaves this sliver of independence. And it's those people where you have to start thinking about, well, how do you appeal to them? And here is where female voters become particularly important. Donald Trump won male independence by about a th three times the margin that Hillary Clinton won female independence. And so if, if Joe Biden can pull some of those women back over, uh, that's how he wins this election. Uh, and, you know, it's, and that's why Donald Trump won this 53% of white women. What Joe Biden needs to do is get that down to 48 or 49% for Trump. Um, he could even do it with the 50%. But it's, it's, that, it's that sliver. And I should note also that <clears throat> we're seeing the largest gender gap this time around uh, that we've ever seen. And the gender gap is important. The gender gap is the difference in women and men's support for the same candidate. So in general, that would mean what we see is that women support the Democratic candidate by five or six or seven percentage points more than the men support that Democratic candidate. It doesn't mean that women always support the Democrat. If you look to 1984, a majority of women supported Ronald Reagan. They just supported Mondale at higher rates than men did. And so basically expanding this gender gap works to Biden's uh, advantage and trying to mitigate it is what the Trump campaign um, is going to do. But if you look at the polls as of late, we're, if the election was held today and you're to believe the polls, we're talking about like a 30 percentage point gender gap, which is completely unheard of. That suggests that almost all of those independents almost all of those women um, that went for Trump last time, the two thirds of them that went for Trump are coming back over to Biden. And uh, can you say a little bit about why you think, at least in polling as of today, the gender gap is so massive? Oh, I mean, do we have all day? I, I think, you know, so some of it has to do with policy. And in 2016, Trump was hypothetical still. And there were people who argued that he was actually going to be a deal maker. He was going to negotiate with Democrats in Congress because he didn't come from Washington, because he wasn't so ensconced in the minutia of partisan polarization and politics. And that became clearly not the case. But so right off the bat, I think there was this possibility on the part of many voters who didn't like Hillary Clinton that Trump could be different. Uh, and that turned out not to be the case. So when you look at the kinds of policies that he has advocated for, when you look at the kinds of um, you know, proposals that he's put forward, they often run counter to the kinds of things that matter to women. Now, female and male voters care about the economy. They care about foreign policy. They care about national security. 
but women are also a little bit more likely than men to care about healthcare and childcare and pay equity and reproductive rights. And on all of those dimensions, you know, Trump has not done anything for them. But on top of that, there's this tone problem. And if you look at the manner in which he has handled the coronavirus and this pandemic in general, there's a tone deafness that is appalling. I think the polls would suggest far more so to women than men. That's not to say that men are giving him high grades. They're not. And even Republican men believe that he has not handled this the way that he's had to. But when you think about empathy, he's completely lacking in it. And that matters more to the women who are still the ones that are taking care of their families, who are still the ones that are being forced to go out there and you know, figure out how to navigate, how to put food on the table amid a pandemic. Uh, and, and he just doesn't seem to care. And so I think that on that front, it's, it's been very detrimental. And in trying to um, win these women over by saying that you know, law and order will return to the suburbs when he's president is a page book out of 1950. That's not the lives that female voters are living anymore. That's not the lives that American citizens are living anymore. And I, I just think that, um, I think that that tone and that lack of empathy is ultimately what's driving a large chunk of this gap because the policy gap is probably the same size as it's been in previous election cycles. And do you think that President Trump tried to close this gap with the selection of Judge Amy Coney Barrett? Um, and do you think that that'll have an impact? I don't, I, yeah, he probably thought that was gonna matter. I mean, maybe it'll mobilize some Republican women, but they were voting for him anyway. Um, you know, I think that messages like that can mobilize, he's done an amazing job mobilizing his base. I mean, like if you believe that base politics is the way to get elected in this country, then it's hard to come up with anybody that has done a better job than Donald Trump. Um, in most cases, base politics isn't sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. Uh, so I think that Amy Coney, Bryan, Amy Coney Barrett uh, sends a very clear signal to conservatives and to Republicans that reminds them that despite things they might not like about him, he has really done what he said he would do when it comes to the judiciary. And maybe some of those people who had been turned off by him and were going to stay home will now go out and vote for him because this is a salient consideration. But it's hard to imagine that he's going to get any kind of crossover appeal because of a nomination like that, or that independent women who care that 210,000 Americans have died on this president's watch are going to say, oh, but the Supreme Court. Uh, switching gears a little bit, um, a questioner asked, does research find a difference in how men and women govern differently once elected? What differences are seen uh, in legislative and executive uh, activity? So it used to be the case um, that there were some differences. And Republican women in particular had a more moderate profile when it came to voting preferences, especially on issues that had to do with women, families, and children. And this was the case in the, in the 1980s as well as the 1990s. There were, in fact, many Republican women in Congress who were just as liberal on social policy issues as Democrats. Um, and, you know, Connie Morella, Marge Rockama, Nancy Johnson, the whole sort of Northeast corridor had these women who were, you know, it was totally fine that they were Republicans. They crossed the aisle. And as a result, they generated compromises and they created bipartisanship that might otherwise be absent from the chamber. As the parties became increasingly polarized and as districts became increasingly polarized, those women either chose not to seek reelection or were defeated and they were replaced by Democrats. So their policy views sort of stayed to better represent the district, but we wound up with a situation where Republicans and Democrats moved further and further apart. And as a result, now there is virtually no difference when it comes to legislating um, what matters is whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And, you know, research that I've conducted, research that others have conducted, suggests that women are no more likely than men to um, sign on to bipartisan legislation. They're no more likely to co-sponsor it. They're no more likely to cross the aisle when it comes to procedural votes that would just sort of allow the chamber to move forward and conduct business. They're certainly no more bipartisan when it comes to substantive votes. Uh, they're not even more likely to travel in um, codels together with people of the opposite party. So, you know, when, when they're going on these fact-finding missions abroad, they're no more likely to say, oh, we need somebody from the other party so I have a sense of what's going on. So, no, it doesn't, it doesn't really seem to matter. Um, 
the one place where it does seem to matter has to do with a general sense of civility or collegiality. And there's some evidence to suggest that women care more about um, developing friendships and developing relationships with people across the aisle. Those friendships and those relationships might make Congress a more civil place to work certainly doesn't manifest in more bipartisanship or any sort of legislative change, but it might be generally a good thing. Um, I will end with this question though, by saying that uh, Craig Bolden, who's at the University of Virginia has found that women are uh, a little bit more likely than men to be effective in that they're more able to, they're better able to keep their bills alive through the um, process especially if they're members of the minority party. So that sort of suggests that they work harder and they figure it out and finagle a little bit more than men do. Uh, at the end of the day though, keep in mind, most members of Congress don't get any bills through if they're in the minority party. So the question becomes how important is keeping it alive to step four versus step five, but it's something. Right, and, and uh, that's a really great point about, you know, you need to know a legislator's party not their sex, to know how they're going to vote on any given bill. Um, however, research that I've conducted shows that women are actually more legislatively active than men. And that is true in terms of actually the number of bills that are introduced. And that is also true in terms of the number of speeches that they give on the House floor, whether, that, whether that's uh, a speech at the beginning of the legislative day or a speech during debate on a major policy issue. And once more, women in both parties are actually more likely to discuss the impact of that issue on women. So more likely to reference women in their speeches, whether or not it's a, a bill that relates to women's issues or uh, other policies altogether. But certainly when women are voting, you need to know their party and that'll tell you how they're going to vote, just like um, all members of Congress. Yeah, I, I, and so I think that what, what matters there is the extent to which the kinds of activities that you're talking about matter for representation. And I think they do, right? When you think about a member of Congress, the representational experience is not only are they reflecting the district's preferences on a bill, it's also are they providing um, sort of a voice for their constituents. And, the, and, and that, that matters. Um, it's not necessarily the kind of thing that voters think about or care that determine. Professor Pearson, have you gotten a phone call? Um, it's, it's not necessarily the kind of things that voters think about when they're, when they're determining effectiveness. I actually, I, I'm, I, I'm always a little bit leery to suggest that women are better legislators or that they work harder because that then sets up the, I, I think they probably are, and I think they do, but I think that that sets up the expectation that um, we can expect more from them and that they are gonna end gridlock and that they're going to change the way Congress works. And no, no group of people, unless we completely fundamentally change the institution itself and the rules has that ability. So, you know, I think drawing the distinctions that you've drawn are really, really important. There's a difference between um, sort of how you act and what you say, and then ultimately what you do. And, you know, if they want to get reelected and they represent a Democratic or Republican district, they really don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question um, from P Professor Minta. Um, thanks for joining us today. You said earlier that with the growing political polarization in the country, the descriptive characteristics such as race, gender, and sexual orientation will not significantly affect people's vote choice. Do you expect the U.S. Senate and governorships will soon reflect the racial, ethnic, and gender diversity in the nation? Could you please provide insight into why this is the case? No. I, I will provide insight. No, I don't think that they, um, that they will reflect the nation. And I think it has to do with the candidate emergence process. Um, you know, if we were starting from scratch right now and we had a set of candidates across the country who basically looked like the country and they were running from the areas and in the districts or in the states where those demographic groups are well represented, I do believe that we would wind up with a political institution that almost reflects what our you know, national or general population looks like. But that's not the case. And, you know, when you have 75 or 74 um, men in the Senate right now, and, you know, almost all of them are white, when you have 70% of our state legislators as men across the country, when almost all the states and bit large cities have male mayors, and these people seek reelection or then run for other offices, there's just not that much room because of incumbency. And so, you know, I, I, I just, even if we're ready, and even if women and people of color ran at the same rates as men, 
there are just not that many opportunities for them. So that's why I think it's slow and steady. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, for women, about two thirds of the gains generally are on the, on the Democratic side of the aisle. The, the gains are even more substantial for people of color. On the Republican side of the aisle, the number of um, candidates of color is paltry. And so given our two party system and given how divided we are as a country, if only one side is a political landscape where non-white male candidates feel like they can play, that further um, slows the pace at which major gains can be had. In terms of electoral systems, uh, do you think that ranked choice voting has helped to elect more women and does it have that potential? I mean, anecdotally, it looks like it has in certain areas. I, I think that what we tend to forget when we think about ranked choice voting is that if this becomes the new system that's adopted, everybody is going to figure out strategically how to have it work to their advantage. So in the places where it's helped women, it's also been, a, it's been sort of um, new and everybody hasn't actually had, and all of these campaigns haven't had the time to, um, you know, to really uh, figure out how it works. It's also a situation where you know, this is not, we, as I mentioned before, we don't really have a demand problem for female candidates. When women run, even in our electoral system, they're just as likely to win. I think ranked choice voting has substantial advantages for candidates that are not Democrats or Republicans, right? So some of the sides to these alternative systems tend to help um, and promote third party candidacies. When it comes to women and men, they're, they're just as likely to win, it's that they're not on the ballot. It's not that once they get there, voters are reluctant to choose them. Thank you. Uh, a question from the audience. If President Trump loses, what is your prediction on whether or not the midterms will look better for Democrats and women in particular in 2022 based on the influx of women? Oh, so if President Trump loses, the Democrats lose seats in 2022. Like, I mean, you can count on one hand the number of times that the in-party doesn't lose seats uh, during the midterms. But not only that, there's going to be a big backlash. Um, and frankly, I would take that backlash if it means sort of a civil and um, simple transition of power. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think that this is going to be a situation where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris go into the White House and then the entire nation sort of figures it out and agrees that this is great. And in 2022, they send 50 more women to Congress. Um, there will be major, major um, attention to how, especially if the Democrats win the Senate, how democratic rule is ruining everything. Look at what has happened in the last 24 months. And, uh, and you know, I think we'd be more inclined to see something like 2014 uh, or 2010 than what, you know, than, than the other years. Right, right. The president's party typically loses seats and especially after big elections in the first term. Um, turning to the U.S. Senate, uh, the U.S. Senate is up for grabs. Um, Democrats would need to win three or four seats to take majority party control, depending on who's president. So some of the most competitive races feature one or two women running. Um, are there any that you're following in particular? And what are the gender dynamics like? Uh, so the main Senate race, which is probably the most competitive in the country right now, features two female candidates. You've got Republican Susan Collins and Democrat Sarah Gideon, and it's largely centered on traditional women's issues as well. So much of this race comes down to Collins's support or lack of support for reproductive rights, her support for Brett Kavanaugh, and the extent to which she has sort of pushed back on the Trump administration's um, attempts to curb women's rights. So that's a race where if you like female candidates and if you like feminist policies and if you like gender dynamics on the campaign trail, that's the race for you. Um, it's got, you know, all of those things. The other contest that has interesting gender dynamics is in Arizona. Um, Mark Kelly is a Democrat married to Gabby Giffords trying to unseat Martha McSally, who was appointed to fulfill John McCain's seat after she lost um, to Kirsten Sinema. So, there are all of these dynamics going on there. She was asked to the debate last night whether she embraces the Trump administration and she refused to answer the question. So she's well aware of the fact that Arizona is a battleground state and that the tides of the presidential race probably will predict whether she wins or loses. Um, the gender dynamics there that are interesting are that she was the first female fighter pilot. And so she's regularly discussing 
the extent to which she has broken down barriers and she's cracked glass ceilings and she understands how to be the only woman uh, in a room full of men. And that seems to have worked for her in the past. This time around, uh, again, those kinds of personal experiences don't seem as important as your partisanship or your party affiliation. Uh, and Mark Kelly has a very, very compelling life story right now with Gabby Giffords at his side. So I would say those are the two that I find the most interesting. And then the one race that I'm now completely obsessed with that does not feature a female candidate is the North Carolina Senate race, where because of men behaving badly this time on the Democratic side of the aisle, Democrats might wind up without the seat that they need to actually take control because Cal Cunningham's mistresses uh, are you know, suggesting that maybe he's not a paragon of virtue. Thank you. I think touching on our discussion earlier in the hour about uh, why women are so dramatically underrepresented, we have several questions related to whether or not women face increased scrutiny um, on the campaign trail because of their clothes, their family life, their role as mothers. Um, are they more likely to be targets of negative ads? So what are the dynamics on the campaign trail for women? And is that part of the problem? Uh, they're really not. And so I think that one of the most interesting research findings that I've had over the course of the last 20 years, actually, is that not only do women pay no bigger a price than men for references to their appearance or their families or sort of their traditional gender roles, but that hardly ever happens. So we tend to think about Hillary Clinton's pantsuits or we'll think about um, Michelle Obama's arms, for example, even though she wasn't running for office. But that kind of coverage is really, really rare. And if you think about it at the national level, we spend an awful lot of time talking about Donald Trump's hair and Chris Christie's weight as well. And so, you know, it's just, just not that prevalent. And we, when Danny Hayes and I looked at every um, congressional race in 2014, in the month leading up to the election, we coded every newspaper article in the district that mentioned either of the candidates. And we came up with literally a total of, I think, 35 mentions of a candidate's appearance across the country overall. So we're talking about almost 870 candidates, 30 days of coverage, and a total of like 35 references. And the overwhelming majority of those references were completely descriptive. Like, I think a third of the ones on the Democratic side of the aisle were to Tammy Duckworth and mentioning the, fa mentioning the fact that she was missing limbs because of her service in Iraq. And so that's a reference to somebody's appearance because you're thinking about how she actually looks, but it's certainly not the kind of damning reference that we would traditionally think of. So the good news is that it's just not that prevalent. At the, at the presidential level, it probably is, but it seems to now be damning male candidates just as much as women. Thank you. We've talked a lot about women as presidential candidates, women as voters, women as candidates for Congress, but what about women for women as candidates for other levels of office, whether it's local office, um, sort of at the most local level, or whether or not it's executive office uh, in the governorship? Are, is the path different? Are the barriers different? Um, or do women still win at the same rate as men uh, in these offices as well? The systematic studies suggest that women win at the same rates. We don't have the same level of data because it requires cobbling together election returns from 500,000 different elected positions. Uh, but generally speaking, there is no evidence that at any of these levels of office, there is systematic bias. And I would encourage people out there who are thinking about running for office to remember that at the local level, so many of these races are uncontested. So forget not wanting to engage in any of the activities on the campaign trail, you don't have to. File for the office and there's a really good chance, especially for school boards around this country, that you can have the seat. So go for it and you know, get a taste of the political arena and then maybe you'll decide that you wanna run for higher office. Right, well, it's hard, we don't have a crystal ball. But what do you think the gender takeaway from the 2020 election will be? Will it be a so-called year of the woman? I think it will. And I think it'll be a year of the woman for th on three levels. First, I think we will wind up seeing a surge in the number of women serving in Congress. By, and put that surge in quotes because there's just not that much room for improvement, but there will be room for improvement. Second, I think we will see a female vice president, which means that we have cracked um, a glass ceiling that we have never before cracked. And third, I think it's going to be because female voters fought back. And I would expect unprecedented levels of turnout among Democrats and women in particular. So I'm going, I'm, I'm predicting a three wave year of the woman, a three, a three pronged year of the woman. Um, but I should let people know that I'm almost always wrong. So take <laughs> right. 
Great. Well, with that important caveat, Professor Lawless, uh, professor and chair of the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia and the author of many books about gender and American politics. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Humphrey Institute. Um, we really, at the Center for the Study of Politics and Government, we really, really appreciate it. And uh, we hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you.